What's going on, everybody, and welcome to Listen Money Matters. Wealth consists not in having great possessions, but in having few wants. That is a quote from Epictetus, and I hope I pronounced that correctly, but uh, he is a long dead philosopher, so I don't know. We got time travelers listening to our podcast now, Andrew. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my name is Thomas, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Andrew, who, uh, what are you drinking, man? So, uh, it was a little early for me, because I, I rolled out of bed late, so I had an extra Rebel in the fridge. Um, we were oh, sent, Yeah, we were sent like a whole slew of them. They're pretty tasty, so I got a uh, vanilla spice protein. Um, but before we go into anything, we we have a correction to make. We do have a correction to make. You didn't ask me what I was drinking. Thomas, what are you drinking? How inconsiderate. Just You're drinking, drinking, are you drinking water? No, I'm drinking spice tea. Oh, okay, cool, cool. It's fancy tea. But yeah, we do have a correction to make. So uh, in last week's episode, I believe, was mm-hmm. it last week's? Yeah. We talked with Brian. We talked about his uh, his PMI woes with his mortgage because mm-hmm. he, take, he took out a uh, FHA loan with his house. And... Basically, the whole episode, we were like drilling into his brain like, you need to get up to 20% equity in your house because then you won't have to pay PMI anymore. You ax that $250 per month PMI premium off of your mortgage. And we didn't think go. that it was a good idea that he was in there with PMI in the first place. Yeah, absolutely not. We were like, dude, why'd you even do this? Yeah. But it's out, and you were telling me, so in 2013, there was a law passed that basically says if you get an FHA loan with PMI – that PMI applies to the entirety of the loan. So you can never escape PMI in that loan unless yep. you refinance, which obviously right. costs you more money. So it not only is like a really poor decision to get PMI with FHA, like <laughs> it's just a really expensive shitty, it sucks. Yeah, exactly. So Brian, if you're listening to this, it probably would still be a good idea to look into refinancing at some point because PMI over the life of the loan is still going to cost you a buttload, and that's a technical term. Um, <laughs> but we apologize for not knowing everything all the time and being omnipotent. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but... <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. We're, we're pretty omnipotent. Just this one little slip up, you know. It anyway. was edited out, you know. <laughs> Yeah, so this week's catchphrase was actually submitted to us by Nicole via email. So thank you, Nicole. And if any of you guys have your own catchphrases, at uh, Money Matters Man on Twitter is our preferred method for you to send them to us. But you can also email them to us as well. So let's get into the episode because we are on a bit of a clock this time. But today, I am personally very excited, and you probably are too, Andrew. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Scott Sunshine, who is uh, the author of a new book called Stretch, Unlock the Power of Less and Achieve More Than You Ever Imagined. And I read the book jacket of this and it was all about like the power of constraints and the power of limitations. And I am just super into that topic. So I feel Scott, like 80 percent of our time off the air. We talk about this. <laughs> yeah, it's about absolutely. time we got like a doctor on who actually did research to tell us. So, Scott, yeah. um, how's it going? Good, good, good. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. And so you're you're a professor at Rice University as well, right? That's right. I'm here at the business school at Rice. What do you teach? I teach courses in organizational change and leadership. Okay, cool. So the, the courses you teach probably have a decent amount to do with the topic of the book that you wrote. Did you also do research in this area as well? Right. Yeah, I've been doing uh, research in this area for about a decade now. And uh, everything from understanding both how organizations can stretch to how individuals stretch uh, in their own careers. Awesome. So to start this off, um, I kind of pitched the concept a little bit a few seconds ago, but I'd love to hear it from you. Like, 
what is the overall idea behind Stretch and um, what kind of gave you the reason for writing this book? So the book is about stretching your resources. It's stretching not just money but how you think about time, relationships, uh, intangible things. It's basically about how do you learn to work with what you already have. And what the research shows is when we do that, we're more creative, we're more engaged with our work, and we live more satisfying lives. I mean, how many times have you heard people say, you know, if I only had more time or if I had more money or more experience, this is what I could do. Stretching Mm -hmm. teaches us to kind of drop that mindset and start working more creatively with what we already have. And the idea really came from uh, I was working in Silicon Valley during the rise and the fall of the dot-com Era. And it was, it was a crazy time out there because the way that we were building organizations was all about the inputs. How much mm. venture capital can we pull in? How fast can we grow employees? How can we build our customers even though they were costing us money? And that all works when the good times roll and everyone wants to keep writing you lots and lots of checks. And I mean, we took well over $50 million of venture capital money in. But when that money stops flowing, that is a unsustainable way of running a business. And you know, a lot mm-hmm. of people run their lives that way too. Yeah. And I've noticed it becomes very easy to uh, scale the outputs to match the inputs if you're not conscious about it, Um, both as a business, but also in your personal life. I mean, maybe you'd know this too, Andrew, like as more money comes in, it seems like more money tends to go out. Yeah. And you kind of don't have an idea of why that's happening. Yeah. yeah, and I mean that's that's one of the things too that we also see in the in the research. There's this idea of mindless accumulation, and mm-hmm. we become so focused on the inputs that we start accumulating these things, but we never actually step back and reflect what are the goals that I want to accomplish here. And it's so interesting because you know we talk about personal finance, but what's the first word in that phrase? It's personal, but we never think what our personal goals are. Instead, we look and maybe we see our neighbors and they got a new car or they got a bigger house or a colleague is now in a slightly bigger office. And we start thinking that, you know, we need the same things, too, because these are all symbols of success for us. But we Mm -hmm. never stop to ask ourselves at the end of the day, what are we trying to accomplish, you know, in our organizations, in our careers or in our lives? Is there like a core psychological reason why we're so focused on comparisons to other people? Yeah. The the reason is quite simple is we we tend to understand ourselves in relationship to others. So it's actually a very natural question to ask, you know, how am I doing? And we sometimes make these comparisons upwards, those who have more than us, but we also sometimes make them downwards to those who don't uh, have as much as, as we do. So those comparisons are just an important part of figuring out how we're doing in the world. The danger, though, is when we start making comparisons to people's resources because it displaces our goals. It makes us focus on having getting more as the goal when usually resources are just a means to an end but we tend to think that getting more money uh, is is the ultimate end but it's not I mean it's kind of a bizarre thing to think about I mean what are you what are you going to do with it if you have a plan for how you're gonna how you're gonna use that money that's one thing but most people tend to just mindlessly accumulate stuff because they think that's the token to success yeah um, one example from my life because I've, I've experienced this actually and I think for a long time as a student, like there were very concrete goals for why I needed to have money, why I needed to get to a certain level of wealth, et cetera. Uh, And then as I started to progress through my career, I saw maybe like the percentage change, the increase over time. And then it became very easy to start focusing on that and wanting to keep that growing. And maybe the reasons for why it was growing or why I needed it to grow took a backseat. 
And it's always been fascinating to me how like how easily that can take over as a focus if you're not careful. I don't know, Andrew, like, do you feel like that as well? Yeah, I feel like um, I have X amount of work to do, and if I have an hour, I will somehow superhero it in an hour. But if I have a week, it'll expand to take a week. Um, and so for me, this that whole concept of constraint breeds creativity, uh, I feel really resonates because when I have less availability or less resources, I tend to be more... Um, intelligent about how I use them, uh, mm-hmm. to you know to be more effective. Yeah, and Andrew, that intuition is exactly right because what the research shows us is when we are in abundance. So here's one here's one fascinating study. Uh, participants were were broken up into into two groups. They were asked to reflect about a time when they were children, and in one group they were told to reflect about a time when they had a lot. This is the abundance group. The other group was told, reflect about a time when you didn't have a lot. This was the scarcity group. Then the researcher said, okay, find some creative uses for a resource. And in this case, it was out of all things, bubble wrap. Mm-hmm. And you know, those that were in the scarce condition, simply reflecting about a time, about having scarcity, were able to come up with much more creative ideas. And the explanation is quite simple. When we surround ourselves with abundance, we tend to use resources in their typical and conventional ways. But when we surround ourselves or even just embrace or think about, reflect on scarcity, we allow ourselves the freedom to use the things around us in different ways. So in that case, Mm. having less gives us permission to do more with what we have. It's kind of like that necessity is the mother of all invention quote. Right. When you you need something, you'll figure out a way to use what you have to get it. Right. And I think part of the objective and stretch is sometimes we have objective situations where we have necessity. Like you talked about being a college student, right? Usually you don't have a lot of money there. But the challenge is as we advance in our lives and we get access to more resources, we become more successful in our careers. How can we get into that same type of mindset so we can do more with the resources we already have? Yeah. You know, I was actually, uh, and Andrew, you've listened to this too. There's a podcast series called Wrath of the Khans. Um, It's part of the Hardcore History series. And he's, he's talking all about the history of the Mongol Empire. And he, he mentioned that um, as they grew and became more powerful and more wealthy and they would settle down with these settled societies and then they'd basically become soft. So like Kublai Khan would rotate his troops back to the steppe so they were cold and hungry and had basically nothing. So they always kept their edge. And I've been just like thinking about that. Like as you become more successful, um, your, your individual needs – in proportion to what you have dwindle. So like, and Scott, I mean, you're, you're a distinguished professor. I'm guessing you have this uh, personal experience as well. How do you keep that edge Mm. as your resources grow? Like, what do you have to do? What kind of habits do you adopt or structures do you set up? I think it's really important to be careful with who your neighbors are kind of metaphorically, who who are you spending your time with? If you're spending your time with people who have even more than you, you're going to continue to chase and feel unsatisfied. So uh, it's kind of like being on a treadmill, like you, you advance in your, 
in your livelihood and you turn up the dial on the treadmill, but you're not actually running anywhere. You're still kind of on the treadmill. And that's what happens with chasing because a lot of the meaning that we derive in our lives is all relative. So I think the most important thing is to be very mindful of who you're hanging out with. And if it's all people that have uh, higher means than you, that that becomes difficult. But of course, it's it's actually really hard to choose our neighbors, especially at work, as we advance in our careers, our peer group changes and our peer group has higher levels of income and higher levels of status. And that's who we're spending time with. And there's this real push that we feel inside ourselves that we need to show that we're just as important because, you know, we've got the bigger office now. So we need the the fancier car. Um, I'll tell you uh, just a kind of a Quick story from my uh, wife's experience, uh, you know, who works in in industry, and uh, she started a, a new job once, and she had an assigned parking spot, and all of her employees came out to scope out what type of car she was driving, because mm-hmm. that's how we tend to judge people's huh. worth based on the value of their resources. And if mm-hmm. we hang around with people who have more than us, we're going to have a hard time getting off of that train. Well, Scott, if we um, say had constraints, you know, and and your wife did, and then she was able to become. Um, a leader in in the company, you know, people reporting to her. Uh, does she then become soft because she now has the resources and she's moved up, and so it's harder to push forward? I mean, she's still driving her ten year old car, uh, you know, uh, despite that. But I think what it does is it takes a lot of courage because we, we tend to to judge people based off of the quantity of stuff that they have, right? How big their house is, what kind of car they drive, the size of their office. And I think it takes a lot of courage to say, you know what, I don't actually want, or I don't, I certainly don't need these things. And I don't even, I don't even want these things. When I reflect on what my goals are, you know, driving a really fancy car plays absolutely zero role in, in making me a satisfied person. So I think it takes a lot of courage to be yourself and to recognize that, you know, these things that are conventional markers of success really aren't a part of your success. But that, of course, is really hard in the type of culture and society we live in. But what yeah. the research will show is we can be happier because we're actually focusing on doing the things that we care about. And we're not focusing on chasing the things that we feel other people will value. So even the research says this and people can understand it from an intuitive sense. I feel like, you know, you say you have somebody listening to this podcast who's like, yes, I resonate with the fact that X, Y, and Z that I'm doing is not necessarily congruent with my goals. What are some specific things they can do to sort of reframe their mindset in a way that lets them be comfortable with um, not chasing abundance? Yeah. So besides besides picking picking uh, new neighbors, I think it's it's really important to just get in the habit of creating artificial limits. You talked mm-hmm. about, you know, it's easy to just start spending more money because more money is is coming in the door. But just as a simple exercise, you know, try for a month, uh, you know, focusing on a budget that isn't based off of how much money you're bringing in and doesn't just magically grow because more money is is coming in, but one that sets a limit and a constraint and says, okay, this month I'm actually going to spend 10% less, not because I need to, but because I want to. And then Mm. what's probably going to happen is you're going to start seeing that you are experiencing the world in different and probably better ways. Instead of, you know, going out and buying something material, maybe you'll go have an experience that doesn't cost as much money because you're mindful of your budget. And of course, we know from the research that uh, people tend to derive much more satisfaction from experiences than they do from material possessions. So by forcing yourself into this mindset through creating these artificial limits, you can continue to enjoy the benefits 
of a stretching mindset, even though you're now stretching by choice, not out of need. Okay. Do you think people need to get rid of things they have and to downscale from a position they're in? Or is it sufficient just to stay where you are and reframe how you think about what you have? Yeah, well, I, you know, that, that's a tough one. I mean, there's a, obviously a, a lot that's been talked about in the more recent years about moving to a more minimalist, minimalist lifestyle. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people end up having way more possessions than they really need to derive satisfaction. Uh, so certainly some cleaning out the closet uh, probably would serve people well. But what I want to recommend is, you know, after you clean out the closet, recognize that what's already in that closet can do a lot more for you than you realize. Because if we start to think about resources, not as fixed to a specific use, and we can use Mm -hmm. our resources in lots of different ways, our closet is actually full, even though it's half empty. And that's something that I think people have a hard time grasping. Okay. Would you say that you're a minimalist by any means? No, I, I wouldn't. No? I wouldn't say that I'm. A, I, I wouldn't say that I'm a minimalist. I would say that I'm. I'm frugal, but I wouldn't. Okay. You know, I think if you look in my closet, it's it's probably a a, a little fuller than it should be. <laughs> Although <laughs> it's probably fuller, not because I'm necessarily buying things, because I have a hard time throwing them out. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, you can probably see in the camera, I'm not much of a minimalist either. <laughs> one of the the biggest excuses. I think I hear for people who want to start their own thing or just kind of like make a change is the lack of time, you know, because they have to go to work, um, they're Mm. they're married, or maybe they have kids and just, you know, they want to spend time with their family and there's just no time. um, So they can't. Uh, what, What would you say to something like that? I I first have people think about how they actually are spending their time. So a lot of people see putting in as many hours as possible and FaceTime at the office. And, you know, organizations are guilty of instilling this culture as a badge of honor. I spent 12 hours at work yesterday. Mm. That must mean I'm doing a lot. Well, it could, but it could also mean that you're not very productive (laughs) with your time. So, you know, there's, there's ways of just getting out of judging our contributions based off of our inputs. So I think that's the first thing that people need to think about. The second thing that they need to realize is there's ways that they can connect different parts of their lives to give them that time. We tend to segment what we do at work from what we do at home in ways that create artificial barriers that I don't think are necessarily helpful. So, you know, as a working parent, it's not helpful for me to compare myself to a stay-at-home parent. But what I can't do is think about what I do at work and how it might enrich my family life and vice versa, how my family life might enrich my work life. So I have the flexibility, at least not everyone does, to bring my daughter into work with me. And instead of thinking, oh, I've got to spend a day uh, at home I bring her in and she has an experience that she'd have a hard time experiencing. It's so cool to hang out on a college campus and she's very curious and we ask questions and we, we take breaks and I discuss some things and describe some things. So it's just about making those connections to integrate different parts of your life. And then the final thing I'd recommend is it's really easy to develop tunnel vision about your resources because we're so used to focusing on you know using our resources. But actually what the research shows is occasional distractions are really helpful for unlocking our creativity. So kind of the running joke when I was early in my career was, 
Microsoft Windows was coming out and they had the solitaire game on there and you'd walk around the office and be like, you know, who's playing solitaire? Well, actually what the research shows is taking short breaks and doing something mindless helps you be much more creative. So it's okay to not think you have to be on and working all of the time. Taking a break, your mind actually works in ways that unconsciously thinks. And when you're on that break, you're making connections you might not realize at the time, but will bear fruit down the road. Yeah, so playing yeah, it's called is like important. the diffused mode of playing thinking. is really important. Mm-hmm. And when you're working, you're like basically just engaging that prefrontal cortex and you're not letting a lot of the other parts of your brain, they kind of background process what you're doing, be engaged. So, yeah, playing solitaire, like I like to just noodle around on the guitar when I'm taking a break. And I also think when you do that and when you kind of pre-commit to doing that uh, and tell yourself it's OK, you work harder when you're actually working. Mm. Yeah, because, because you know, like I don't have the entirety of this eight hour period to work because I'm going to take a few breaks. Yeah, I I do that myself where I know if I have more time than I need, I end up just wasting that extra time. So Mm -hmm. I try and do something else because I know that kind of the modest, you don't want too much time pressure, the research shows, but the the moderate amount of time pressure allows you to be more creative and more productive Mm -hmm. with what you've got. So what is a modest amount of time pressure? Because on one (laughs) end, I feel like, if I just schedule out my hours, then I'll be really effective. Um, but I will, I will also be a burnt husk of a person by the time it, I have to go to bed. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, that's a that's a tricky question because these studies are in so many different contexts. So mm-hmm. I can't give you a hard, fast number and say it's, you know, it's. Uh, you know, 15 minutes or an hour or whatever, whatever that number is. But it's something that you you tend to feel. And the way that psychologists tend to measure time pressure, they measure it not so much as an objective time, but as a psychological state. It's called felt or experienced time pressure. So when you're kind of, you know, moderate in, in that level, that's when you you get the creativity. So I'm going so kind of could- to use your example of playing games to justify to my wife that I'm doing this for business reasons. Uh, that's right. Just make sure Just not make, make sure that it's not the whole day. Because if it is the whole day, then I think that's a hard case to make, Andrew. Well, <laughs> well so that, that's my question is when is an excessive amount of business playing and when is like the appropriate amount? Like can, can I get away with half a day or is that just me? I think that's that's pushing it, Andrew. You know, 10 or, 10 or 15 minutes every every hour and a half or two hours I think is really helpful. One of the rituals yeah. I do, it's not so much in the middle of the day, but it's at the end of the day is I like to take an hour walk. Mm-hmm. And that walk is not only just good for me, but just it, it frees my mind. It lets my mind wander. And I, I think about things. I'm always you know, accessing my phone and writing myself emails. I just had this idea. I just had that idea. Some of the ideas in the book came up that way. I would just walk and not have any specific goal in mind, like putting the pressure on me and saying, by the end of this walk, I must have another chapter laid out in my mind. It's just let me walk and see what happens. And these ideas just pop into your head because your mind wanders when you take a break. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you should go go for a walk or go to the gym every single day. Um, and whenever I feel like mentally foggy or I can't get any work done, like I'll go for a walk and it just, it fixes it. So Scott, you just released your book. Uh, I'm not even a month ago. So you're, you're fresh off the process of creating. Um, and I, I find it awesome that you take walks for inspiration. Cause I also do. Um, but my question to you is like, uh, a lot of people will then like take a walk, get inspired, and then they just take a ton of walks, make a bunch of notes on things to do, but never actually like action on those ideas and do things. So for you, 
um, what do you think is the good balance between like strategic high level thinking and locking yourself in a room and getting some shit done? Yeah. So I have a, I have a chapter that speaks to some of this on the dangers of over planning, because I think what you're really speaking to is we spend a lot of our time planning to think what we're going to do. And we tend to forget that our efforts and our achievements actually come from what we do and not what we plan to do. And organizations make this mistake a lot. You know, they spend five years coming up with the strategic plan and the re research shows there's actually a very modest correlation between performance and planning. And there's a good reason for this. I mean, planning five years is really hard. I mean, it's, it's actually in the environment that we're in today. It's hard to plan for the next day or even the next hour. I haven't mm, checked yeah. Twitter to see what's happened to the world, but, uh, <laughs> you know, who, who knows? So, <laughs> so instead of focusing on planning, what I tell people is throw out the plan and just start doing things. And when you mm -hmm. start doing things, you start learning. So for me, I actually don't write with outlines. So I would just start writing chapters and they wouldn't be so good at first, but then I would have this document and I would read the document and it would say, okay, there's some ideas here. And then I would write another version of that chapter based off of the document. And the idea is when we just start doing things, we learn about ourselves and we learn about the situations that we're in and we just start moving. Yeah. The danger Scott, is, go ahead. I, well, I was gonna ask, uh, cause a lot of people say, um, right, like you're doing it and, and they might look at you and they're like, well, this is something that Scott is passionate about. And so he was propelled forward by passion. And but they'll, they'll sit there because like I actually don't know what I'm passionate about. But when it when it hits me, I will, like Scott, create an amazing book um, that helps people. And my question to you is, were you just like propelled by a ridiculous amount of inspiration and passion or was it something else? Well, there was obviously a lot of inspiration and passion that went into writing the book. And I would argue that if you are pursuing goals that you actually care about, you'll have enough passion and inspiration to get going and start acting uh, with what you have anyway. Mm. I think the problem is if we're chasing goals that really are in our goals and it's all about, they just want to get as much money as possible or get a job promotion, not because I want the additional responsibility because I just want the idea that I got promoted and I care more about getting the job than doing the job. Then I think it's hard to find that passion and inspiration, but mm -hmm. You know, I don't think it takes that much to get going. I think the bigger impediment that people have is that mental robot block that they think everything needs to be planned out perfectly or nearly perfectly before they yeah. can start doing things. And mm -hmm. I think if people just start doing things, they'll realize that, wow, look at all the things I know or look at all this, look at how uh, I'm, I'm doing with this and they'll build momentum from that. But the, the biggest roadblock is not even getting started. On a related note to that, because I think a lot about not planning, just jumping in, just kind of getting a whim or an interest in, in pursuing it. I realized a while ago um, that I never really like all the things I've done were never the product of me dreaming really big and then pursuing that dream and then achieving it. It was always, hey, that's interesting. And then I'll try it. And maybe there's a bit of a stretch goal there, but it's pretty short term. And then I do it. And then I get to the next point and now there's another stretch goal. So I almost wonder if like people don't need to make huge plans and have huge dreams. Like it's okay if you do, but I get this feeling that people feel like they need to have gigantic plans or, you know, big goals and aspirations. And I'm not sure how, how right that is. 
Yeah, I'd I agree know. with that. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that, Thomas. I mean, I never had a dream of writing a book, for example. Mm-hmm. I came to the idea of writing a book after spending so many years doing the research and thinking, this is a really compelling set of ideas. I'd love to bring it to a bigger audience outside of the rather insular circles of academia. So that was mm-hmm. never that was never a dream. Now, obviously, planning is important for some things in our lives, right? I mean, you guys probably talk about the importance of financial planning and thinking about yeah. setting up a 401k plan or college savings. I mean, those are, you know, those are good times to plan, but other times it's okay to just go ahead and test the waters, experiment and try different things and jump into things without having a plan. And what separates successful people from unsuccessful people who do this is their ability to adapt what's around them to fit those circumstances. So we sometimes are reluctant to take a a new job maybe because, well, we don't have any experience in it, even though there's a whole host of research that says that actually a lack of experience gives us important perspective that helps us see problems in different ways. So when Mm -hmm. we jump in and we see ourselves doing well, we realize that a lot of our dreams are actually retrospective. And we didn't even realize they were dreams until we accomplished them. And that's actually really rewarding because mm. then you're not so worried. Oh, I'm off the plan. And you end up you know, <laughs> not you know, getting worried and anxious. Am I actually really following my dreams? Uh, no, because mm, sometimes you just don't know those dreams exist until you've actually had them. So it's yeah. almost like if you just start moving, you'll be fulfilled because your movement is what you wanted. Right. And so in yeah. chapter in chapter five of the book, I talk about these two different mindsets. One is what I call the acting mindset and one is the planning mindset. And the planning mindset is well, I got to figure everything out in advance. The acting mindset is all about finding that satisfaction from just doing things and realizing that you're going to take some wrong turns, of course, but mm-hmm. it's how you respond to those turns, how you learn from those terms that help you onto a path of success, but you also have a lot more fulfillment this way because you're not so focused on, am I on the path or off the path? You're just, mm. you're doing things and there's real satisfaction to that. It's, it's yeah. so interesting. I like that, that a lot. Up because I, maybe I'll be at work and uh, it'll just be one of those days where, where I crack a problem or I've just made a lot of progress alone, solo at my desk. And, you know, then I I close my computer and I go home. But it was fulfilling for me to have just made that progress. And it's not like uh, completing that then made me a millionaire or, you know, I got massive accolades as a result. It was just forward motion, meaningful forward motion. I almost feel like that is like one of the keys to being satisfied with life. Not necessarily. I mean, I achieving goals is great and having being able to look back and see what you've done is great. But I think it's like constant motion, constant, maybe not constant stress and challenge, but like always having something new that you're coming up to and having to solve or having to adapt to along with regular periods of rest. You know, Scott, I'm curious, how does, uh, the approach of stretch differ for the individual as opposed to an organization or, or is it pretty much uh, the same? Well, there's there's a lot of overlap. Obviously, for the individual, the research and the ideas are also focused on how this could lead to a more fulfilling life, which wouldn't be relevant for an organization. But many of the practices like setting – we talked about setting yourself an artificial budget in your personal life. You do mm-hmm. the same thing at work. You know, Ask for you know one less person for a project or push up the deadline. Now, these are sacrilegious things. I mean people would be like, well, you know, why would I want to do that? I'm trying to do the opposite because… 
because the status of my project is tied to how large the team is and I can't be successful if I don't have a bigger budget. But I think if people experiment with this approach, they'll realize that there's a lot of creativity and innovation that comes when you put these constraints on. So there's a lot yeah. of overlap there. Same idea with throwing out the plan. We talked about the planning uh, or the, the the lack of planning and how that helps you follow dreams that you might not know you even have. The same thing for organizations where they can innovate a lot more when they realize that it's hard to plan five years down the road. In one study yeah. – researchers kind of there's this there's this notion that you can't be quick and accurate at the same time you can't get the best answers and be fast but what the most right. innovative organizations do when there's a lot of uncertainty in the environment is they're able to do both and they're able to do both because they're not focused on planning five years out for a future that doesn't exist instead they're doing experiments in real time and understanding the world that exists right now and they're learning and adapting yeah yeah i think that that's really important um i was reading a book about like war strategy recently. And one of the big lessons that came out of that was like the, there is no one strategy that always works. And like the nations or generals or war councils that focus on like the strategy that worked last time or trying to boil it down to like strategies that always work, they inevitably fail and lose to the ones that just are able to adapt to the information coming to them on the fly because the situation is always different, always changing. So it's, it's less about planning and being able to put like the right pieces in place in advance and more about like being able to adapt with what comes in the moment. You know, um, I, I got to thinking that, uh, when I first started podcasting, I was the worst, like the worst ever. And we've now <laughs> done an ungodly amount of recording. And I, w- I would like to believe that we're like a little bit better than at least when we started, um, our second worst now. <laughs> right. Now this this is only our, <laughs> we're at our second worst. But um it it's through kind of like practicing the the craft and just kind of like doing it over and over. Are there things that you could do uh to to kind of improve your ability to stretch your resources and your mindset? Yeah, so we we talked about some some things, but some other things I would throw in there is you know, scrambling up your routine. And this could be for, for work. You might think about running your Monday meeting on a Tuesday in a different room or with a different seating arrangement than usual. I mean, and then just asking, you know, what kinds of new information, how do the dynamics of the group change? Or it could be, you know, instead of driving to work one way, drive to work another way and you might see something and, you know, it might trigger the way that you think about things in different ways. So, you know, part of it is, is scrambling up your routine. Uh, part of it is, you know, imposing constraints, even if you don't have those uh, constraints, visiting new places so you can see resources in different ways, going to an mm-hmm. industry conference in someone else's industry, having lunch oh, with yeah. someone, having lunch with someone who has your same job in a different company and mm-hmm. just you know, learning how they solve problems. And, you know, you're going to go back and you're going to think about what you have in, in different ways. Awesome. So, um, one of the, one of the questions I wanted to ask you about was, uh, one of the chapters in your book is mix it up, the power of unlikely combinations. So can you elaborate on what exactly that means and how it relates to stretching? So it's the idea that often the sum of two things is more valuable than the parts. And that's a saying Mm -hmm. that goes all the way back to Aristotle. And if you look at the history of innovation, many of the most exciting innovations came from that type of approach, right? This is the 10-year anniversary of the iPhone. Before there was, you know, a camera, 
and a phone and you put them yeah. together and you've unlocked all of this possibility. But you can also do it for non tangible resources. So I've done a lot of research studying gourmet food trucks. And one mm -hmm. of the things I found, these are very resource constrained organizations, of course, they don't have a lot of money. They work crazy hours. They have inferior equipment. Many of them surprisingly don't have cooking experience before they start. And what wow. I found is they mix competition and friendship really well. And mm -hmm. even though they're competing for resources, they're competing for customers, they're competing for parking spaces, they found ways to be great friends. And that friendship allows them to get by and to thrive. So you're a pizza truck and you run out of mozzarella cheese and one of your competitors will go pick up cheese for you. Or you had a bad week and a lot of customers didn't come to your truck. Other trucks will funnel customers your way so you have a better week. So you have this really oh. fascinating balance of both competition and friendship. So the idea of mixing it up is taking things that you don't think go together and putting them together to unlock more value. Interesting. Yeah, I, I try to think about that a lot. You know, I think like th this podcast is kind of an example of that because you take finance, then you take, I don't know making dumb jokes and drinking beer and you have something that's different that was not there before. I've always been fascinated with how to combine things like that. So for somebody who is just trying to learn how to manage their money with more of a stretch mindset, I mean, are there, are there any like specific actions that they should take today? Yes. So uh, a few things. One is, you know, don't forget the personal and personal finance. Think about what your real goals are. And it's usually not to get more money. What do you actually want your money to do for you? Mm -hmm. Stop comparing yourselves and buying things just because other people are. Judge gifts, not by their cost, but by their meaning. So I've, I've written some stuff about too, about how to give more meaningful gifts that aren't based off of the amount of money that you're spending. And then one that we haven't, um, that we, we lose sight of is recognize being frugal is different from being cheap. And the okay. idea that when you're cheap, you are literally psychologically paying from spending money. And that's usually not the mm. ticket to a very satisfying life. You're not gonna buy things that you need or even the indulgence that you want. There's nothing wrong with, with an occasional indulgence. If you're a business person, you're not gonna make the investments in your business that are necessary to help it grow. But when you're frugal, you are psychological. You take you take psychological pleasure from spending money wisely. So it's not okay. so much about not spending money; it's about taking the pleasure out of getting a good deal or using a resource efficiently. And that's that's an important thing for people in both their personal lives as well as their, you know, organizations if they if they run them. So it's kind of like when people if people are cheap, they almost view their their money as like a score that they don't ever want to see go down. Whereas if right. you're frugal, you just see it as a resource and you want to use it as efficiently as possible. But it's OK if it goes down because it has a use. It's not just a point value. Right. We're, we're not just there to kind of rack up the biggest number with our money. And that's why cheap people are paying from from spending it. It's like, you know, my number is going down. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to go to your grave and you're going to have a large number and you're going to ask, what did I really accomplish in terms of my goals? So yeah. what if there was a cheap person listening to this and and heard your description of a frugal person? They're like, wow, that's really cool, but I, I just – that's not me or I, I have no idea how to really even get there. How might you suggest they get there? Yeah, I mean that's that's hard especially if you've been socialized and you've, you've grown up that way. But just try it. I mean try, try thinking about – how what how how you can use your money to accomplish goals you want to care about and recognize mm -hmm. that 
getting more and having the most money is probably not what your real goal is. And I think just having that realization could go a long way. And if that doesn't yeah. quite fit the bill, they should probably just read the whole book then. Yeah. <laughs> I have an example for this, actually. It, it isn't about money. It's a little out of left field. Um, but in a way, I've always viewed money as kind of a score and I know logically that it's a resource to be used, but it was always hard to actually emotionally feel it that way. Uh, a few years ago, I started playing a game called Magic the Gathering, and you have like life in that game, and if you lose it all, you lose, but there are a lot of cards you can use that you have to use your life as basically a resource, and by playing enough, I started to like intrinsically view my life more as a resource to be used to do what I wanted to do to win instead of like every time life went down, uh, that's bad. That's me getting hurt closer to losing. And surprisingly, that's affected how I view my money as well. And I'm more comfortable with making investments in my business and making investments in other people than I used to be when I just thought like, oh, every dollar has to be saved and any expense is me losing something. Right. I mean, I, I profile in the one of the last chapter eight of the book, people who I say overstretch and there's mm -hmm. this, you know, multimillionaire who's a, uh, you know, who runs his investment banking, well-known investment banking company. And he lives in a house that's full of mold that his wife won't live in because he's too cheap to fix the roof. Oh. And he's made, you know, similar decisions with the way he's run his business that actually got him in trouble with compliance regulators because not he w was doing anything malicious, but he was being too cheap with enough controls. So there mm -hmm. are times where when we're cheap, we are sacrificing both our well-being and our performance. And recognizing yeah. that you can be frugal and not be cheap, I think, is a big step in finding a more positive way to live a life or build a business. Yeah, exactly. I like that. So, Scott, this has been a great conversation. Uh, seriously, it's a pleasure talking to you. And uh, for people who want to go read your book, what's the best place for them to go to to find it? Well, you can go to Amazon and search mm -hmm. for Stretch, Unlock the Power of Less, and Achieve More Than You Ever Imagined. Or you can go to my website, which is simply www.scottsunenshine.com. And that's mm -hmm. S C O T T S O N E N. S-H-E-I-N, and I've got a video trailer up on the website, and I also have a really neat quiz where you can test your stretch and see how much you know about being resourceful. Oh, awesome. oh cool. And awesome. we'll definitely right. link to that in the show notes. Yeah, right, we'll excellent. have links to, we'll put a link to the quiz and also the book uh, page in the show notes so people can go check it out. Uh, Scott, thank you for being on the show. It's been a great conversation. And guys, if you've got questions about this particular topic, about stretching versus chasing, or about personal finance in general, our email is listenmoneymatters at gmail.com. So definitely shoot us your questions. Let us know what's on your mind. And other than that, you can also find our favorite resources with our apps, tools that we use, and books that we recommend. This one may be on our bookshelf soon over at listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox. So thanks for listening, and we will see you in next week's episode. Later, guys. Wait a minute. Please tell your friends about this show.